We have been spending the last seven weeks looking at seven sayings from the cross that Jesus spoke about. And for the last seven weeks, we've looked at uh, uh, these different sayings. The first one we looked at talked about forgiveness, where Jesus uh, tells uh, the Father to forgive those who are harming him and abusing him and hurting him by crucifying him on the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The next one we saw was salvation, a last moment salvation. When one of the thieves that was hung next to Jesus asked if he would be remembered when Jesus entered into his kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we looked at affection, a word of affection where Jesus spoke to his mother and the disciple that he loved and he called both of them to live with one another and to care for one another. As Jesus was now beginning to uh, end his earthly life, he was making sure all details were taken care of. And then we got to the cry of anguish that came when he yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was separated from the Father because of the sin of you and I on that cross was placed on Jesus, the Father, as we know, cannot look upon sin, so he turned and forsake and forsook his son. Then we looked at a word of suffering that involved his most basic need when he said, I thirst. Hear the living water. Hear the one who announced the oceans into existence is now asking for a small drink of water to wet his lips. Then we saw the cry of victory when he cried to Telestai, it is finished. And then if you were here with us this uh, Good Friday, we saw a word of contentment. When Jesus gives his spirit to the Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We have looked at famous last words, the last words of Jesus. But let me tell you, they are the last words of Jesus on the cross because he lives and he did speak again. And we're going to look at those words this morning because we celebrate today on this great celebration of Easter, not only an empty tomb, but that our Savior spoke to us afterwards. He spent time with his disciples. We're going to learn he spent time with many and the great time that he had with his followers after his death, burial and resurrection. I began to think about what it must have been like in Jerusalem on that uh, Saturday morning, as the Jerusalem Times made it to each of the homes, if you will, and the news had come, the zealot Jesus, the great leader Jesus, the young rabbi Jesus, crucified. That was the news around town, no doubt, that this Jesus, who had done miracles, this Jesus who had, had skirmishes with the chief priests and the leaders of the law, would find themselves being announced that he was now dead, crucified for saying he was the Son of God. I wonder if many of the people that had uh, literally put him on that cross were saying, this is an end of a movement. This is the end of this Jesus phenomenon. I began to think about the phenomenon of many movements in our culture. They're driven by people. 
They're driven by vision of what may come. We live in a time, even today, where we see political movements taking place. And I'm amazed at what happens as we've watched one political figure after another drop out of this presidential race. And it's amazing. They go from front page news. They go from being on TV all the time, being interviewed by all the uh, great TV personalities, to obscurity. How much do we hear of the people like John Edwards, Fred Thompson, Mike Huckabee? We don't hear about those guys very much, do we? Their movements ended. That doesn't mean that they won't come back and, and maybe resurrect, if you will, that, that movement. But they're done. And that's what happens to movements when the doors are closed. It's amazing. Uh, I was watching on CNN just a uh, couple uh, weeks ago, and they were talking about how quickly political um, teams closed down. When Fred Thompson dropped out of the race, in a matter of 24 hours, his website was closed down, all of the offices were shut, and he was back home in Tennessee. It happens quickly. And no doubt, all the hours that they spend, why sit around waiting for something that isn't going to, going to happen? And yet, when we look at this movement of Jesus, on Saturday morning, when everybody was saying, it's over, the last words were not spoken. Out of the great words of a uh, wonderful California governor, who's also a theologian, Jesus cried out as he did one day, I'll be back. And he was telling the truth. I want to spend the moments not looking at, as we have the last couple of years, the uh, gospel narratives of the empty tomb. I want to look at what I call the real last words of Jesus. Words that go from beyond the grave. Because when we hear Jesus speak these words, it is yet another proof. It is yet another opportunity for us to praise the name of Jesus because it is proof that he lives and he is with us today. So look to Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 1, I want to read the last section of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke. If you don't know, the book of Acts is written uh, by Luke, who was a doctor. He was a physician. And he wrote, he wrote a gospel that was named after him, the Gospel according to Luke. And I want to read the last words of that. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find our passage in Acts, in Acts 1, on page 770 of your pew Bibles. And this is what the end of Luke says. Luke chapter 24 uh, verse 50. You can just stay in Acts if you would like. This is what it says. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. This is speaking of Jesus. And while Jesus was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, speaking of the disciples. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now notice what he says now, starting in his uh, next uh, writings here in the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, speaking of the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, this is a guy that he's writing to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he, has cho he had chosen, 
And after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, speaking of the, the apostles, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. There they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And when two men dressed in white robes stood beside them, they announced, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father God, life is worth the living because Jesus lives. And Father, we come today and we are a people that are hurting. We are a people that are sinful. We are a people uh, in need of saving. And you promise that life is worth the living if we would trust in the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, testimony after testimony could be shared about what you've done in the lives of many people here this morning. So Lord, as we open your word and as we look at Luke's words in Acts chapter 1 and throughout the Gospels of what you shared after you were buried and after you rose, Every word, every syllable, every thought that was shared is yet again another proof that you live. And we are so thankful for that this morning, that we do worship one who not only died, who can, uh, see our, uh, who can uh, sympathize with our suffering, but one who also can conquer death and who can give us the ability and the privilege to not suffer death as well. But as the Apostle Paul says, that those who have trusted in you, that absent from the body, we will be present with the Lord. What a great privilege to be your child this morning. Thank you for rising from the grave, that death would no longer have its victory, that death would no longer have its sting. We love you and we glorify you this morning in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, the Greeks used to have a phrase. And that was, we do not believe in what we call obituaries. The Greeks didn't write obituaries. The only question they would ask of an individual who died was, did they have passion? As we've looked at the last seven weeks, we have seen Jesus as one who had incredible passion. But not just some dreamy passion that excited about something, but no one ever understood what it was about. 
Jesus articulated that passion and he lived that passion out. Some of the passion came from the desire to do the Father's will. Some of the desire was to uh, redeem man back to himself. We know that the passion was seen when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus. And after that little man climbed up into a sycamore tree, Jesus goes to his house and he says, Today salvation has come to this place. And then a phrase that we've heard so many times, the passion that not only led Jesus to hang on that cross, but allowed him to rise from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We see that passion comes when Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's why he rose from the grave, to bring glory and honor to his Father, to redeem man and finish uh, the justifying process of salvation, and then to, redeem, or to uh, save us from our sins. There are three things I want to look at this morning as we look at our text, because when we explore the power of the resurrection through the words spoken by Jesus, we see a couple things take place. First of all, we need to have a context. We understand that the real last words of Jesus took place. They took place during his many appearances after the resurrection. The Bible says that Jesus would suffer on the cross, that he'd be put into a tomb, and three days later he would rise from the grave. Now every one of the gospel writers articulate this post-resurrection time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all speak about Jesus after the resurrection. And many of their uh, thoughts are the same. You will see many of the same things taking place in each of the Gospels. But as in much of the case with the Gospel writers, each of them have something different to share. And so we're going to be looking not only at the book of Acts chapter 1, but we're going to look back at each of the Gospels and see what we can learn about Jesus after the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. Well, there's a couple things we need to understand about this time. First of all, uh, it took place during a certain period of time. Look at, Luke, or look at what Luke says in Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, I wrote all about Jesus when he began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Now, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, look at what it says. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Of 40 days. Now, if you know, 40 days is a pretty significant uh, and substantial period of time. It's a little over a month on our calendar. We know that for 40 days and for 40 nights it rained as Noah was in the ark. We know also that Jesus in the beginning of his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 4 finds himself 40 days in the wilderness or in the desert being tempted by the devil. And what I thought about was it's amazing that Jesus bookends his life with 40 days. 40 days in the wilderness, a time of temptation. But I'm so glad that, one, he didn't fall to temptation, and two, that he did not grow so weary that he would give up in the wilderness during that time of temptation. But the second thing we see is that 40 days after his death, burial, and resurrection is not a time of temptation. 
It is not a time of tragedy, but these 40 days are a time of great triumph. Every day that Jesus got up, every day that Jesus was with the disciples, was yet again another exclamation point to the world, to the devil, and even to his father that I am risen, and I am the risen Lord. It took place during a certain period of time. Now we see that it also involved many different people. It involved many different people. Look at what the text says. It says that uh, uh, until the day he was taken up to heaven, he gave instructions to who? To the apostles. Now we know that there were 11 of the apostles or disciples. They're one and the same. There was 11. We know that at this point, Judas has gone and hung himself uh, on a, uh, with a tree and he has ended his life. And so we have Peter, James, and John, and the whole group with him. And Jesus spends time with him. We know in the end of the Gospel of John that Jesus spends a lot of time, and he's asking a lot of tough questions. According, uh, in fact, to Peter, he begins to ask, do you love me at the end of the Gospel of John? And, G and Peter says, yes, I love you. And he keeps asking, but do you love me? And Peter says, yes, again. We see a restoration of, a, of one that was fallen in the life of Peter. But notice with me, turn in your Bibles, if you're in the book of Acts, to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Because we know that Jesus did appear to his disciples, and that would have been easy to uh, kind of talk away, to say, well, of course he would show up to his disciples, but, but that's it, right? Well, we see throughout the Gospels, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're in the book of Acts, go to your right. One book, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 3. But before I do that, we know from the gospel writers that there were many people that Jesus saw. We know that Jesus appeared on many different occasions. We know that he appeared, as uh, Dave read, uh, of the women at the tomb. We know that uh, Mary and, and another Mary and Mary Magdalene all go and they hang out at the tomb and they're wanting to mourn the death of a loved one. And the angel comes and says, he's not here. He's gone because he's risen, just as he told you he would. We know that it wasn't just the women. We know that the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they had been a part of a, an incredible weekend, if you will, in Jerusalem. And they're heading back down the road to Emmaus, to a small village outside of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, Jesus appears before them. They don't know it's Jesus at that point. And Jesus begins to share and dialogue with them. And they invite him into their home. And then Jesus disappears. He's gone. And then right before he disappears, they realize that was Jesus. It was him. And they said their hearts were burning as a result of what took place because the truth that he was testifying was being made revealed to them. But notice the greatest recording of Jesus' post-resurrection uh, time takes place in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses uh, 3 through 8. Let me read that for you. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. For what I've received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, this is important. Let's listen up. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now listen to what it says in verse 5. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than, look at what it says, more than 500 of the brothers 
at the same time, most of whom are still living. They're still around, he said, at that point. And he said, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away. Verse 7 says, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And at last, he appeared to me as to one who was abnormally born, which we know that the apostle Paul was able to see the risen Savior, even though he had not walked with him in his time of his earthly ministry. Jesus appeared. And why did he appear? Well, it gives in his appearances some many, uh, I'm going to add a a point here before we move on, many uh, convincing proofs. Write that in there before you go to the last one. Many convincing proofs. I thought about that for a moment, and I was spurred on uh, to this point by a conversation I had uh, with a friend this week. And he knew I was preaching, and he knew I'd be preaching about the empty tomb. And he said, but Tim, I was watching the Discovery Channel the other day, and there are a lot of theories about what happened to Jesus. What are we to do with those theories? And I began to ask him, well, what theories did you hear about? And, and what theories uh, do you have questions about? And he, he shared a couple of them with me. But notice what Luke says. After his suffering, in verse 3, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. Well, we're not sure what the proofs are, but uh, totally, we know that he's appeared. We're not sure all of what Luke may have been meaning by many convincing proofs. But before I look at the proofs, I want to quickly look at some of the theories that people have about this empty grave, about Jesus rising from the grave. Of course, there are many skeptics who want to give a reason for that empty tomb. The first one that I uh, know about is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is, is that Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he never in fact died. He just went into a coma. And so when they uh, put him into the tomb, he wasn't dead. He's just kind of in this coma. And, and when he came to sometime on uh, Sunday Easter morning, and he just kind of unwrapped himself, got up, and he rolled the stone away, and he walked out. There's a problem with that. Historians tell us what kind of crucifixion Jesus faced. We know that Jesus was pretty beat up. We know that he was at a point of dehydration. Even if you were to believe that Jesus was somehow semi-conscious, or coming out of a coma, there is no way that a beaten up human Jesus would have been able to not only get himself up and move a rock away, but to take out the two Roman soldiers that would be guarding his tomb. It just doesn't work out. That theory doesn't make sense. Another theory that has been brought up is the no burial theory. And this comes from historians that would tell us that what would take place is when a criminal was crucified, many times a criminal didn't have any family that would account for him. And so what would they do with the body? They would take it to a place called Gehana, which was a a big garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And they would literally, and I don't mean to be gross, just take the, the dead carcass and throw it on the heaping, burning pile of garbage. And that's how they would get rid of the bodies of criminals. And what they say is, is that Jesus never was put in the grave. But what happened was, is he was thrown on the garbage dump and he was left dead there and there was nobody in the tomb. Well, that's easy to explain away because we see that the government is involved in the sealing of Jesus' tomb. And Pilate would have not been very happy had he known that his Roman soldiers that were under him 
that they had put a seal over an empty tomb. That seems like a pretty bad omission, don't you think? That you go through all these details of making sure that the burial is taking place just as it was supposed to. But then, well, we forgot something. After we rolled the tomb, hey, buddy, we forgot the body. There's no body. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Another one that was brought up, this was the one that uh, my friend brought up, was the hallucination theory. And this is where they say that uh, the disciples just hallucinated. They were under a lot of stress, and, and they thought they saw Jesus. And, and, and they, they saw Jesus in, in, in some sort of dream or some sort of uh, hallucination that takes place. Well, that could be explained, you know, if it was one or two. If Luke was saying that, hey, John and I saw the risen Savior, and that was it, I could say, you know what, you've got some credence to your statement. But the Bible says that more than 500 saw it. Now think about this. It'd be very difficult for us, all of us, to see the same hallucination. Even when you talk to some of the greatest uh, people that over, oversee and analyze the, uh, the psychoanalysis of the brain and, and what takes place in the protons and neurons of your system, they would say it is nearly impossible or even unthinkable to think that 500 individuals, let alone two or three individuals, would have the same hallucination taking place. It just can't happen. Another one that was thought up was the seance theory. Of course, a seance is conjuring up a dead spirit. And what they say is, is that by the power of the devil, that the disciples conjured up the spirit of Jesus. They got around and and, and put together uh, some candles and got into a circle and started chanting some magical chants. And by the power of the devil, they've conjured up the spirit of Jesus. And that's what they saw. The problem is, is I know the devil, and he would never be too stupid to try to resurrect Jesus, even in a seance. He wanted him dead. And to think that then the disciples who followed Jesus would then turn to one who they learned that was the prince of evil. Why would they do that? It doesn't make sense. Another one is the mistaken identity. I like this one. Jesus, he's in his 30s, probably got a beard. We don't, we're not sure what he looked like. And what they say is that there was another Jesus lookalike. And he was hanging out. There was a body double for Jesus. And these disciples, you know, they didn't have good eyes. There was no LASIK surgery back in the day. They couldn't see him just right. And so they had a mistake, and it wasn't really Jesus. That doesn't make sense. If you spent three years with somebody, I don't care how bad your eyesight is. You know, I, I don't, and let me just, let me share this illustration with you. It's a great one. We have a brother in our, our midst, Lloyd Logger. His eyesight isn't as good as it used to be. But you know what? As soon as I say, hi, Lloyd, he says, Tim, it's good to see you. You know what? It doesn't just take a body, but it's a voice. You spend three years with somebody, you're going to know them. You're going to know how they look. You're going to know how they sound. To say that it's a mistaken identity for 500 to be mistaken, to be mistaken for 40 days, to eat with someone and be mistaken by who's sitting across the table just doesn't make sense. The one that creates some of the best uh, uh, involvement in the theory uh, blogs out on the Internet is the theft theory. And that is that the disciples overtook the uh, Roman guards, rolled away the stone, and took away the body. And this is amazing because this is given a lot of credit to a buddy named Peter 
to be able to do that. Remember Peter in the garden? The army comes to take Peter away and he pulls for a knife. And what does he do? He tries to take that, that sword and he can't even hit the guy right. He cuts his ear off. These guys were fishermen. They weren't soldiers. They weren't mercenaries, if you will. These guys wouldn't have been able to do that. And even if they were able to do that, all of these things, let's say all of these things possibly could be true. The many proofs that we see is in the changed life of the disciples. Because what the Bible tells us is, is these guys say, we saw him. We didn't hallucinate. We didn't conjure him up. And even if we did, would you go to the grave for something like that? History tells us that the uh, disciples, many of them lost their lives. Would you lose your life for a hallucination? Absolutely not. Would you lose your mind after you and a couple buddies had a seance and, and brought back a spirit? No, I'd say, you know, we were just screwing around. You know what? It's not the case. Would you lose your life because you had a lie that said that you stole the body and then you had it and you buried it somewhere else? Would you lose your life for it? Would you say, you know what? We're done. We wanted to see how long it would take for you guys to catch on. You did. We're done. But not only did these guys keep their mouths shut if that took place, but they kept preaching. And we are here today because they kept preaching about the truth of the resurrection. That's what they did. And the many proofs that we see, whether Jesus eating, whether Jesus talking with them, whether seeing Jesus walk through walls and all the great stuff we see post-resurrection, none of those proofs meet up to the proof that we have looking back at the changed lives of the disciples. Those who ran away from Jesus when he was in bodily form as a human being, but now that he had been risen, he had been raised from the dead and he was ascended into heaven, as a result of that, what are they announcing? The same story, all of them. John MacArthur, a pastor in California, says this, it was important for the apostles to know that Jesus is the risen Lord. Who wants to go around propagating a gospel of a dead leader? Christ showed himself to the apostles so they would know that he had conquered death. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is the early church's boldness and commitment to preaching Christ no matter the cost. Had that not happened, they would have gone back to their routine. Had they not been uh, confident of what they have seen, they would have gone back to the routine of life and quit advocating the Christianity that they had bought into those three years. But Christ did appear to the apostles, he said, not only once, but repeatedly over a period of 40 days to confirm he was the risen and glorified Messiah and to confirm the message they were to take. Many proofs. The final thing we see is that there was a certain purpose. There was a certain purpose. Why did Jesus appear? Why was he there? Well, there's a couple different reasons. Number one, as I just read it, to give certainty to the disciples. Many convincing proofs. There's certainty in that statement. What he was wanting to say is, hey, I am who I said I was. I did what I said I would do. Be certain of it. Luke says it was convincing. They were so convinced that they went, as I said, to their graves to die for something like that. The next thing we see is that there were commands given. Turn in your Bibles, if you're in the book of Acts, go back to your left, uh, three books, or two books, I'm sorry, three, three, I'm going to make three, Matthew chapter 28. 
So you're going to go back, Acts, Luke, uh, John, Luke, Mark, and Matthew. Matthew 28. Okay. Someone announced to me the uh, the header over verse 20, uh, chapter 28. What does it say there? The resurrection. So that's in verse 1. What does it say at the start of uh, verse 11? What does someone have of that? The guards report. Okay, then at verse 16. So we see what's going on. The body's gone. 28 starts out with the resurrection. Then in verse 11, the guards come back and, and they say, hey, something happened to the, to the body. It's gone. It's missing. Now notice what happens afterwards. Then the term then, which means this happens all after what has transpired, the resurrection, the guards report. It says, then the eleven went to Galilee, to a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now listen to what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now stop for a minute there. If Jesus, if this was just some sort of hallucination, if this was just something that was just a fleeting moment of time, Jesus wouldn't have wasted his time giving them commands on how to live after he ascended into heaven. So here we see that Jesus gives commands. This is how you're to live. Go and make disciples. What are disciples? Go to make learners and followers of me and my life and my death. If I have any question about who I'm following, the last thing I'm going to do is go and make followers for that individual. Why? Because I've got questions in my own mind. Why would I go to someone else until I am 100% sure? He gave commands. Next we see he gave comfort. Look at what he says at the end of that passage there teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus articulating? I'm going to be going soon. I'm going to be leaving. But remember what I said? I was going to die. I was going to be buried on the third day. I would rise from the grave. I've done that. I've proved myself to be truthful, proven myself to be valid. So now trust in me, he says. He says, trust in me. And what does he say? I am with you always. There's comfort given to these men. Now, what does that mean for us? Seeker, you who are looking, come to a point of certainty this morning about Jesus Christ rising from the grave. Come to a place of certainty. Look at the facts. Look at the evidence. There's a saying that says you can never deny a changed life. And we see hundreds of people change, millions of people change throughout history. People have lost their lives for the name of Jesus. And today I stand before you as one who is changed by this Jesus. And the question is, have you? Are you certain that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and He did what He said He would do? Come to that place of certainty this morning. For those who are following, listen to the commands of Jesus. Follow His commands. Go and make disciples. Do what Jesus has called you to do. For those that are in need of comfort. Maybe you're struggling. The Bible says that some believed and some doubted. There are some today, even in times in my own life, where I've struggled with doubts 
Is it all that it says it is? Jesus says, I'm with you. Don't doubt. I've done what I said I would do. Don't doubt. Don't be dismayed. There's comfort that is brought through the real words of Jesus. Second point this morning that we see is that these real last words came at a time, at the time of his ascension. What is his ascension? Just to give you a quick uh, rundown of events, Jesus, for three years, at 30 years of age, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. For three years, Jesus gains disciples, 12 of them that are very close to him, and then many other thousands at times were following Jesus. Three years that took place. And when he was 33 years of age, in the springtime in Jerusalem, Jesus comes in and enters Jerusalem. And as he enters Jerusalem, as we celebrated last week on Palm Sunday, they uh, uh, fan palms at him and say, Glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then throughout that week, we have activity after activity taking place. We know on Thursday, Jesus gives the Last Supper. We know on Friday, Jesus goes to the cross. On Saturday, he's in the tomb. On Sunday, he rises from the grave. And for 40 days, Jesus walks and talks with the disciples. And at that point, when the 40 days were completed, Jesus is hanging out with the disciples. And the Bible says through many gospel writers that he ascended into the heavenlies. And they were amazed. Now, what's so important about the ascension? The ascension adds an exclamation point to the proofs of Jesus on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. It gives credence to what he's done, but it does a couple other things. What it involves is his position. Write that down. His position. Look at what Acts 1.9 says with me this morning. Acts 1.9. After Jesus had said all these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. For seven weeks, we have spent time looking at lowly Jesus, at suffering Jesus, as crucified Jesus. And that would be great if we were just talking about a martyr. But at some point in every message that is shared about the cross, there always has to be a revelation that not only did he rise from the grave, but the Bible says that when he rose from the grave, he would then ascend and he would sit at the right hand of the Father, which means that he is at a place of total authority, a, to a place of total privilege. And so what do we see transpire? What Jesus said, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is at a place. Jesus is not on the cross. Jesus is not in the tomb. Jesus isn't even walking around hanging out with us as some nomadic prophet. Jesus right now is sitting at the Father's right side being praised and worshipped by those in heaven. That's where he's at. His position is that of authority and praise. The second thing we see is there's a promise. There's a promise given. In uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8, it says you'll receive power. Well, where will the power come from? Look at verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, 
which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say? He says, if I go, I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm not going to leave you all to your own devices, but I'm going to send you the gift of my Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit would empower the disciples. This Holy Spirit would confirm the disciples' message. This Holy Spirit would then and forevermore live inside of every child who calls upon the name of the Lord. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior today, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He leads you. He guides you. He trains you up in righteousness. He convicts you of sin. And that's what God, or I'm sorry, Jesus promises to his disciples and us today. But what else involved, was involved in the ascension? It involved his preparations. John chapter 14, speaking when Jesus was sharing with his disciples, we know that Jesus says, hey, I want you guys to know something. I'm going to die soon. I'm going to be hung on a cross and I'm going to die for the sins of mankind. And so what transpires? They get nervous. They start talking. They say, wait a minute, Jesus, we didn't see this coming. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you serious? And what does Jesus say in John 14? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, ma- uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me always. What transpired at the ascension? Not only did Jesus die on the cross, not only was he buried, not only did he rise from the grave, not only has he ascended back into heaven, but we are told that he is now preparing a place for us in glory. He's preparing. As I've told you before, I I think it's an amazing thought what Jesus did in six days. Think about what he's going to do in 2,000 years. That's why the hymn writer says, what a great day that will be. When we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory. What a great place heaven will be as a result of that. My third point this morning, what's our response to be? What's our response to these real words, real last words of Jesus? The real last words of Jesus should build our anticipation for the future. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with the future. You're, you're seeing your pocketbook drying up and saying the future doesn't look good. Maybe you're seeing layoffs on the horizon. Maybe your marriage is coming to an end. Maybe a child is heading a wayward direction. And you sit there and say, there's not much of a future, Tim. Things may be bright for you, but they're not very bright for me. Well, physically speaking and, and emotionally speaking, maybe that's the case in your life. But spiritually, it doesn't need to be the case. Because the Bible says that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are given joy in our times of greatest struggle. And though the struggles don't cease, joy comes in. In fact, in the New Testament, the Bible says that we receive a peace that passes, that transcends all understanding in our times of anxiousness and struggle. So what are we to do? We are to anticipate the future. How are we to do that? There are four things I want to pull very quickly from this text. Number one, we are to wait on God. We are to wait on God. Look at what verses 4 and 5 say of Acts 1. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. He says, wait. He says, don't go anywhere. You just wait and allow my Father to give what he's promised. Well, what does that mean for us? We too find ourselves in a series of, or in, in, I'm sorry, in a season of waiting. What are we to do? 
Titus tells us in the New Testament. I'm going to just read this for us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When are we to do this? Titus tells us, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ to return. The ascension tells us that just as Jesus left, he will one day come back. And we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, but we with hope look towards the coming of Jesus once again. Why do we do that? Because Jesus said it was true. And just as he said the resurrection would take place, and it did, so the second coming of Jesus will as well. How are we to live? He says, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We are to wait by living out holy lives. In fact, the book of Peter says that as we live out holy lives, we speed the coming of our Lord. Does that mean as we live holy lives that, that God's saying, oh, they're living holy lives, so I'll speed it up. I'll turn the clock faster. That's not the picture. The idea is, it's very similar to what my family was feeling when we were in Disney World a couple weeks ago. We were having such an amazing time doing exactly what Walt Disney wanted us to do that when we looked at our watch and said, it's already time to leave, we had seen the whole day go by in a second. And when we live the way God calls us to, the Bible says that we are going to look and, and, and it's going to be time. It's already going to be the time and it's going to be time to see the Savior come back. The second thing we see is don't worry about details. Don't worry about the details. Acts 1, 6 and 7. They asked the question. So when they met together, they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? And big important words there, the last two words there, to Israel. Remember, the disciples kept confusing that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom in his first coming. And he wasn't. He came to redeem man back to himself. He didn't come to be served, it said, but to serve. And so what transpires, they ask the question, hey, is Israel going to get back to where we want it to be under King David, man, the good old days? And Jesus, look at what his response says. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. What is that for us this morning? We so many times as followers of Jesus Christ want to get into the nitty and gritty of all the fringe things of Scripture, the things that maybe Scripture doesn't fully talk about. And we start, start saying, well, I want to focus in on this or that. And what does the Bible say? It says, don't worry about those things. The Father says he's got them under control. Don't worry about them. One of the greatest times of frustration I have is when my five-year-old thinks that he needs to know everything that I'm doing. And I look at him and I say, Noah, it is not for you to know. And when we get there, you will know it because I'll tell you we're there. When we talk and we start figure, trying to figure out what God is going to do, not only in the, in the uh, last days of, of the times that we are facing, but also when we begin to try to nuance what we're to be doing in ways that aren't straight with Scripture. What God is saying is, say, don't worry about that stuff. Follow me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of the rest. Don't worry about the stuff of this world. Why? Because I will take care of you. I will meet your needs, and I will give you what you need every day. Don't worry about the other stuff. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, be witnesses of the gospel. 
What does the resurrection do? It calls us to be witnesses. Look, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The job of every person in this place who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ is to be a witness. I don't care what personality traits you have. I don't care how vocal you are, how a, uh, your ability to speak. Obviously, I don't have very good ability. Uh, ability to speak. We are not said, go and be my witnesses if you can talk like the preacher, if you can articulate like the pastor. That's, that's not what it says. It says, you will be my witnesses. Every person here who is a Christian has the job, has the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. Not only to your neighbors and your coworkers, but it says to the uttermost parts of the world. So when you hear Ryan get up and say, I went to the farthest point north called Alaska. He's following what Luke writes here in Acts 1.8. We're to be witnesses. We're to worship the coming king, finally. We're to worship the coming king. Turn to uh, Luke for a moment. Go back a couple books out of Acts to Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Let me close with this thought. Luke chapter 24, verse 51. It says the following, While Jesus was blessing them, He left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. There are two people in this world, and let me close with this. There are two people in this world. Person number one, who does not praise Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Bible says of that person that they will stand before God. There are two ways you will stand before God. You will stand before God because you pass away, and you stand before Him because the Bible says that man lives and dies once and then comes judgment. The judge, of course, is our Father in heaven. You will stand before God because of death or you will stand before God. The Bible says when the times had come to their fullest, Jesus Christ will come back and that time will then unveil the time of judgment. So whether you die or whether you live, a time of judgment is coming. And the question is going to be, do you praise the name of Jesus? And he'll already know the answer, and you will as well. Because if you praise the name of Jesus, then you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And you've done it with great joy in your heart, because without him you could do nothing. The Bible says of those individuals that go to the judgment in that way, that there is a place called hell that is set up for people like that. Why? Because as we learned a couple weeks ago, God is a holy God. And God can't live with the issue of sin in his heaven. And so he sends people to hell. And it's a sad, sobering thought. But here's the good news of Jesus, because there's another group of people, and that is those who praise God. And those who praise God will stand before God, whether at death or at the second coming of Christ. And they will stand before God. And the Bible says that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And because of that, they will be ushered in to be with Jesus for eternity where there will be no more weeping, where there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more dying. All of that will be gone. 
two responses. Praise Him or don't praise Him. Two locations, heaven or hell. It's a dangerous message, as the video said, a dangerous message to preach on Easter Sunday. But we have a king who is coming back. And for some, it will be the greatest day of joy. For others, it will mean great sorrow. But the amazing thing is that the name of Jesus, even those that have never uh, worshipped Jesus, will be thrown to their knees. Because the Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning? If you haven't, today is the day of salvation. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save you because you are lost and you are in need of a Savior. Don't worry about the details of this afternoon in Grandma's house. Spend some time this morning doing a spiritual inventory before you leave this place and ask the question, am I praising Jesus? Have I trusted Jesus? He's coming back. Am I ready? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we worship you. You are the risen Savior. You are the risen King. And Lord, you are the coming King. You will come back in all your glory, in all your power, in all your majesty. And Lord, we see that. We see that you are the God who has overtaken sin and death through the burial and resurrection of your Son. We see you are the God who is coming back because we saw you leave in the first place at your ascension. So Lord, we know that when you said you are coming, it is true. And we who love you and praise you look forward to the day. But Lord, I know in a group this size, there are some who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, today, before they would leave this place, that they would come and talk with me, that they would go and talk to the person standing next to them saying, I want to know Jesus. I want to be saved. That they would go to the Welcome Center, to the people that are holding the door. Lord, they would grab somebody because it is too important to walk away today to not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be given an opportunity to trust you as their Savior. Lord, we praise you. We praise you because you've done what you said you were going to. And as a result, we are saved. And we look forward to what you're going to do. And not only our lives here on earth, but what you're going to do in eternity where we will see you face to face and worship and praise your holy name. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.